Okay. Greetings, everybody. Uh, Monday, October 25th, 2021. It's your chop up of the week coming at you. It's me and Matt, Chris on the ones and twos as usual. Hello. Felix, Felix still on sabbatical. But uh, if you're not joining us for the first half of the show today is Jonah Furman of Labor Notes. Jonah, how's it going? Good. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Obviously, we want to get you on and talk about strikes. They're back. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I'm, I want to get into some of the, the individual cases of, of a lot of some of these strikes that are going on right now in terms of the company, the unions, the stakes, uh, the contracts. But, but overall, to the extent that labor actions seem to have cropped up across a pretty broad spectrum of, uh, you know, industries and sectors of the economy, you're talking um, you know, uh, auto manufacturing, coal mining, healthcare, transportation, telecommunications, and uh, the one that you've written about recently, John Deere. Um, just, just to start things off, could you talk to us first about, the, just in terms of a very basic definition of a tight versus a slack labor market and how the circumstances we see now has perhaps temporarily strengthened the hand of workers leading to some of these, uh, these strikes that we're seeing right now? Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I feel like the protagonist of this story that people like to tell about the labor market is like the small business owner who cannot find someone to flip burgers for $11 an hour or whatever. Um, but there's a very different view. There's also the people who quit their job and say, you know, I don't have to put up with this anymore because I can just go get another job. There's also the view of the people who are stuck working in a tight labor market where there's like understaffing, too much work. You can't have a normal workday, you're working forced overtime, all this stuff. So basically a tight labor market means what people mean is you can not find enough people to fill all the slots, all the jobs that are open, right? Which changes the leverage you have with your boss. So if you say, I know if I walk today, you can't just get five more people to fill my spot. You have more leverage than you had if there's 200 people lined up behind you who are ready to take your job. In a slack labor market, there's, you know, a thousand people at the door and you're scared to, you know, fart too loud or you're going to get fired and they'll replace <laughs> you. That's the essential difference. The, the ways that it expresses itself right now depends on whether you basically are unorganized or you're organized. If you work at Taco Bell and you don't have a union and don't have any real plan to change your working conditions, but you know you can get a better deal elsewhere, you'll go cut a deal. You'll say, I'll go work down the street, better job, more pay. That's a tight labor market for the unorganized. But for union members, organized people in any way, it means something else. It means, you know, sort of systemically, your employer, like John Deere, cannot replace all 10,000 of us. Uh, they have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of leverage. We could make collective demands now that could land, that they could be forced to accede to, that we couldn't have made five years ago. So that's part of what we're seeing with the with the labor market. And now, I mean, like, uh, it's sort of the, it's been a sort of official and unofficial policy among sort of the economic mandarins in charge of the U.S. economy, like Larry Summers, for instance, like basically creating the conditions that uh, like sort of supplement a slack labor market has been basically the de facto policy of the U.S. government, right? Like they, they want, there should always be some slack in the work market so that there, there's sort of a disciplining effect of, you know, that fear that like five or 10 or 20 other people could just take your job if you're fed up with the conditions, right? Totally. And, and the other side, so like the supply side where you're, you want to make people scared to leave their job. So this is like, a big reason why big corporations don't want Medicare for all, even if it would save them money on insurance costs, is because they don't want it to be that you could just drop this job and go get another job without being scared that 
if you get sick in the two weeks inter- intervening that you're going to be totally screwed. So, yeah, it's not just even the, the slackness and the tightness, but it's all these kind of like mechanisms that make it harder or easier to not have a job in this country if that's what you need to get a better deal. Well, I mean, one of the one of the sort of uh, the new mechanisms that's uh, been introduced, certainly post-COVID, is the creation of this category of essential workers. How has uh, the creation of this like this this new category of employment um, put employers in a tighter bind than they've been before, at, at least as it regards John Deere and like uh, or Kellogg's or some of these some of these jobs that are now categorized as essential? Yeah, I mean, well, one one big way is just like this kind of X factor of workers' confidence and understanding of themselves as essential. So, like on the John Deere strike, all the UAW locals printed up these shirts that say deemed essential in 2020, prove it in 2021, you can't build it from home. And that's like the message right there. Workers understand that they were given this status as, you know, we need you to like run agriculture in this country. And now they have a sense that it's time to pay up. And this is like a pattern we see in crises, you know, like World War II and World War I. After those big events where labor gets squeezed really hard to get through a crisis, there's always a snapback effect where workers are saying, it's time to collect and where's, you know, I just got us through this thing, like you said. So where's the payoff? Were the, de- were the deer factories mostly open during 2020? Oh, yeah. Open. I mean, there was so it's like it's like the worst mix. So some of them had big layoffs, which meant people just didn't get paid for big chunks of time. So it's, some people collected, you know, less than 40 grand in a year with a good union job after being there for 10 mm-hmm. years. But other people had, you know, they talk like endless tens is what they say. Every day is a 10 hour workday. And a lot of people were forced in every Saturday because you're so far behind. Partly it's supply chain stuff. Partly it's because deer is pulling in all this money. So they want to put more product. Um, but yeah, you had people who are working crazy overtime. And then again, like I said, with a tight labor market, it means that they can't fill positions. So you don't have like two extra guys who could take your shift if you need off. You know, there's like not this backlog. So you're stuck uh, on the job with more work than you had before the pandemic. Um, speaking of like uh, John Deere specifically, because I know you've written a lot about this. Um, you write that the sort of the, the strike caught a lot of people by surprise. Um, could you lay out what was the contract that was being negotiated? What was being offered that and what, what was it? What, what was being offered that led to a uh, on some for on some in some quarters, a surprising rejection of the contract by union members? including among union leadership. Yeah, totally. Um, So basically, you know, union contracts are up on a cycle every certain amount of years. John Deere is every six years. So the last contract was 2015. And they started negotiations in this year. And uh, there's like sort of a dance going up to a contract expiration date where it's not that uncommon to take a strike authorization vote. Basically, you're trying to say, give your bargaining team more leverage at the table so that the company knows if they don't bargain something decent, you could walk. You already voted to walk. So they took this strike authorization vote in early September. And at that meeting, they gave Deere's first offer. And Deere's first offer, you know, it's another part of the dance. They did this extreme lowball where it was like, we're going to, you know, possibly close plants. We're going to end overtime after eight hours. We're going to end parts of weekend overtime. We're going to gut the seniority system. You know, all this totally draconian stuff, raise your health care costs. So part of that is supposed to like set expectations for what the contract you're going to get, right? You're like, well, it's better than that dog shit offer we got the first time. But it had also the opposite effect where people were like, holy shit, like, fuck dear. Like, we're going to walk if if that's what it comes to. So essentially, they ended up, there's a, there's a whole rigmarole. We can go through the kind of 
punches that each side threw, it looked like they were going to avert a strike. And then they brought this contract to the membership that, you know, the union negotiated. They thought it could pass. You don't bring it, you know, they were not recommending you vote no. They were recommending this is a decent deal. And essentially the big things that it did was uh, it destroyed the pension for all new hires. So there's been a big problem at John Deere since 1997. There's a split in the workforce, what they call a two-tier system. The first tier is you were working there before 97 and you have better wages, better benefits. You have a full pension after retirement. You have health care after retirement, which is important if you work with your body because you can't make it to 65 on that job. And then if you were hired after 97, you have a super cut pension, like a third of the pension, not really livable, no health care after retirement. Your wages are way behind. Your health care plan on the job is much worse. So a big demand in the contract has been for you know decades, people being like, Two tiers got to go. There's no more 1997, pre-1997, post-1997. No more two tier. If you work here, you should get the same benefits and wages and all that stuff. So Deere went the other way. They wanted to make a third tier, meaning if you're hired after November 1st, 2021, <laughs> no pension. So it was totally the opposite. People were hoping to see it eased up, you know, like the two tier system a little softened. Um, and instead, they went the other way with it. They also offered wages that were sub-inflation. If you do the math, it's like 2% or less per year for six years, where inflation for the past year was 5%, let alone for the past 25 years. And Deere is making crazy money, like the most they've ever made. The first yeah, three like, quarters uh, they made over, more. Over all of yeah. this is is the fact that like COVID or not, John Deere is more profitable now than it's ever been. Yes, yes. So the like, I mean, so the, 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 this, this idea that, that like belt tightening needs to take place is kind of absurd. And to this question of like a tiered system, like I can imagine how in terms of disciplining labor, like how, like the, the, the logic behind the effectiveness of this, because if you're pre-97, you're like, oh, well, you know, I want to I keep my pension and the good benefits. And if you're, and like the way in which managing can kind of play the pre and post-97 yes. people against each other. And now, now the, the, this, this suggestion that, oh, how, how, about, a, how about a third tier? So the yeah. post-97 people now have a, like a lower tier that they can feel better than or be afraid of, you know, just destabilizing. Being transferred yeah, into. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Can I, can I just bring up something on the, on the new tier, just that I thought this was a funny detail? They wanted to replace the pension system with something called Choice Plus. Yeah. And just Choice Plus yeah. is one of those words where when you see that offered as a benefit, you know uh, trouble brewing, bad yeah. things coming. Yeah. Yeah. No way is Choice Plus good. Yes, totally. I mean, part of what they were saying is if this 401, it's like sort of, they call it like, a, you know, an enhanced 401k. And what a lot of members have told me is like, you know, a 401k only like a match only works if you have money to save. If you're making 39 grand a year, there's nothing to put in my 401k. Unlike a pension, mm -hmm. which is basically you're going to get this much based on how many years you work. So I know what my retirement's going to be. And like you can say what you want about pensions versus 401k, but the members are very clear for generations at John Deere, you've been able to retire knowing I'm going to get X dollars a month and I can afford it. But I mean, just as it regards to the, the tier system, and I was reading your reporting on this, and then even just like seeing some of the news coverage of the, of the picket lines and, and, and John Deere workers, I mean, it, it, it was uh, heartening in a sense that, like, as you said, a big issue for them was this uh, issue of new hires, and that anyone new deserves the exact same pension and benefits that we already all have. So like, like it, as far as the, the people striking... Uh, they're not doing like they're doing this um, both for their own benefits, but for the benefit of potential future employees of John Deere. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's like a beautiful thing to it. This like solidarity, a moral cause saying 
you know, people, if my son works here, I want him to have a decent job too. I'm not going to sell him out just so I can make short-term gains right now. There is also like this strategic thing that I think people should not downplay, which is workers see that the boss is trying to do this tier thing to divide, both divide the union and play each other like off each other, right? You want to, at a certain point, this is what's happening in the Kellogg strike is they have this second tier workforce that's capped at 30%. And now Kellogg is like, we want to make that 100%. Because at a certain point, the boss isn't going to pay you $12 more an hour to do work that they can get for cheaper. So when they set up the tiers, they're putting this like cancer into the system and the workers see it's not going to happen next year in the next five years. I might even get out unscathed. But at a certain point, they're going to go for the throat and say no pensions for anybody. Yeah, whatever tier gets introduced, even if you're not in that tier, it's a preview of things to come. They're telling you what they're going to to do to you. Yes. Eventually. When 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 their hand is strong enough. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, as far as uh, John Deere goes, um, how has uh, manage re- management reacted uh, thus far in, 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 in the midst of this strike? I mean, I, I read reporting that they were going to cut off the health insurance of uh, striking workers. Uh, what is the status of that? Yeah, totally. I mean, they've reacted, you know, it would be like funny if it wasn't so fucked up and there was so many people affected by this stuff. You know, first they reacted by being like, we'll just switch all the salaried people to do the factory stuff and they'll like drive the tractors and all this <laughs> we, stuff, you know. We covered that last week. There were some, yeah, some <laughs> fairly, fairly humorous 911 calls from the, <laughs> the John Deere plant. Yeah, totally. And like reports of like someone drove a tractor into the wall or whatever. But what Deere has tried, there's really three big, super vindictive things that they've tried to do. One is cut health insurance. So they announced that they're going to cut all these 10,000 workers and their families' health insurance next week, which... You know, is that you don't have to do that. You can do it. You can be like, oh, it's employer based. You're not working. But they're going to cut all these people off this health insurance. The second thing they were going to do is there's this huge it's a complicated, stupid system of uh, how dear workers get paid for like some of their quota work. It's like people take lower wages so they can be in this quota system where they can get quarterly payouts. But this is like earned wages and it's millions of dollars. And Deere was like, we're not going to pay that. It's like totally, it seems like it's totally illegal and totally wage theft, but they were like, we're going to cut you off the health insurance. We're not going to pay you all this money that you already earned. And then the third thing was these injunctions. They're going to go to the courts and say, find a judge who will say, you can't pick it. You can't have a chair. You can't have like a burn barrel for heat and light. And people are like stuck alone now outside these plants because of a judge's order that will arrest you if more than four people show up to the picket line. So the good news, I would say, is that those first two things got reversed. Dear, I don't know if it was like public pressure or someone made the call or they're like scared of Tom Vilsack coming to like a picket line or whatever, <laughs> uh, which sure. Uh, but yeah, they were like, uh, actually, on Friday, they were like, actually, um, we're not going to cut the health care. We're actually going to pay you the wages you earn. So that was like wind in the sails for a lot of these workers who, you know, would have been totally screwed in a lot of ways. Call back the Pinkertons. Vilsack's on the line. <laughs> <laughs> we got we got Bill Sack in the house. Let's let's get out of here. Um, one of the interesting things in your reporting on this is you refer to a a Wall Street analyst uh, report to investors on the John Deere strike, which was uh, provided to you by an anonymous source. And you say the ownership class has its eye on what's going on inside the UAW. Uh, what are they looking at, and why are they so interested? This is kind of amazing. I mean, there's uh, so this is a. The big context for the UAW here is that there's a historic vote happening in the union. 
because of a huge corruption scandal, which really is, you know, people like to joke about union corruption. It's really quite rare to have a really big corruption scandal like this. But for the past like five years, there's been these prosecutions at the top of the UAW where people are going to jail. The guy who negotiated the last deer contract, I think, just finished a jail term for taking money from Chrysler. This is like what the scandal was mostly about was people taking money from the company to negotiate worse union contracts. So this all triggered this whole consent decree thing, which means they are forcing a vote on whether to switch to direct elections of top officers. Basically, they're saying there's so much corruption in this union at the very top that we need the members to be able to have some sort of check on on these top leaders. Right now, there's no way, you know, you negotiate a shitty contract, you just move up the chain of the internal, you know, union uh, at the national level. So this vote that's happening, the ballots dropped last week on Tuesday, and it's basically this like warning shot to the national union leadership that like, if you don't negotiate better contracts, we're going to vote you guys out. The same thing happened with the 90% no vote on the, on the John Deere contract. That was this big surprise was like, that's a shocker. 90% no vote on a recommended contract does not happen for a normal union uh, negotiation. Um, So what they're saying is basically there's this movement inside the union to demand more from the employers and to discipline Uh, national union leaders who aren't ready to deliver, who aren't ready to actually take people out on strike when they authorize strikes, which was a big part of the drama in the lead up here. And, you know, the people who only care about the stock price realize that if the UAW gets new leadership that's ready to strike more and ready to bargain more intensely, uh, you know, go against two-tier contracts that have been around for decades, then the stock price could take an actual hit. So it's really interesting to watch Wall Street. It's like, you know, the Financial Times always has the best reporting on this stuff because they are the ones who actually have skin in the game. And just uh, in covering this, like, I mean, you, you mentioned like just um, the, uh, the kind of um, like the, the practical concerns and, and logistics of maintaining uh, a picket line, certainly in the light of, you know, uh, right wing judges ruling against you. But like you said, having heat, having food, uh, having signs themselves. Like, so what is it? What is the, what is your sense of what the morale is like on, on the John Deere picket lines at these, at these plants in the Midwest? Uh, I think it's, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Like these are people who, uh, there's not been a John Deere strike since 1986. And some of these people's parents were on that line, but I haven't found anyone who was there, you know, whatever that was 35 years ago. So there's this kind of energy of like, we're making history. People who go on big strikes tend to hold that stuff with them for the rest of their life. And there's like clearly some of that intensity here. I mean, imagine you work for like a company that is like grinding you down for 20 years and you finally get to strike them after every five years, six years being like, is this going to be the time? Are we finally going to go for it? So a lot of these people are like still in this, you know, some members have called it the honeymoon phase to me of like this strike. Uh, You know, if it goes for months and months, it's going to be very cold and different in, in Iowa. But right now there's kind of like, you know, a militancy and excitement. There's tons of people coming out to events. One of the plants had like a thousand people show up for a picket line that went 15 blocks long. Um, so I think there's excitement, enthusiasm, all that. Uh, Vilsack aside, I mean, have there been any uh, any politicians, state or national, who have um, lended their support or said anything in favor of this strike or in solidarity with the, uh, the union striking? Yeah, I mean, there's been like people running for office in Iowa who have like showed up to a picket line, which is pretty, you know, in the Midwest is pretty pro forma. I think it's been pretty uh, glaring, the silence from the rest. I mean, it's very strange to have your agriculture secretary be like the most, whatever, pro-worker person of your administration. That probably has not happened before. 
Um, Joe Biden last Friday was like, they were like, what do you think about the strike? He was like, these workers have a right to strike. And you're like, cool. Yeah, you, thank you. Wow. They, you, you'd they say that about be me. Shot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> do not shoot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No live ammunition to be used. Uh, but, you know, it's like, yeah, that's the law from 1935. So thank you. Um, and then Dick Durbin was like, oh, man, really hope there's not a strike. And you're like, what? That's not at all. Like, all the members want a strike because they want to win, you know? Uh, and then Chuck Grassley was like, there's a strike? He's like, uh, Iowa. It's like, I don't Chuck even Grassley understand. Chuck Grassley was like, are you my daughter or where am I? <laughs> or if someone's finally taking action against the History Channel for not showing history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like a crazy amount of voters for him. Just cynically, like 10,000 people, mostly in your state, all their family, everyone who likes them. It's like, I don't know, maybe just doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like, uh, you're, you're right. Like, uh, Joe Biden has said, uh, I want to be the most pro-union president ever, where it's like, well, you, you got miles to go, Joe. <laughs> oh, I mean, and like, also, like, easy buckets, man. It's yeah. Like, just say anything nice. Like, to be like, <laughs> UAW rocks, you know? That's yeah. it. <laughs> um, I guess um, just from, like, the, like a, 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 a broader view uh, of, like, you know, what, what seems to be, like, increasing labor militancy in this country. I mean, I know we've, we've covered on the show, uh, like, you know, throughout the past couple of years, like, an increasing militancy in, in public sector unions and an increasing, like, uh, demand among rank and file against their union leadership to go on strike and things like that. But, like, as uh, someone who's been covering this for a long time, now that we're seeing this in the, in the private sector, I mean, like, do you feel... Do you feel something different? I mean, like, is it is this categorically different than things you've seen before? Or like, I mean, what's your take on just like the the increase in labor militancy in the private sector? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a big deal. But all this stuff is kind of it's still in kind of the tea leaves stage. You're like, this looks like they might be moving in that direction. The trends are good, all that. I mean, what we saw with the teachers was an actual strike wave where West Virginia teachers went and then you know, thousands of miles away, like Arizona, Oklahoma, Kentucky teachers all went to basically running on on vibes, like on inspiration from those workers. That's like the historic strike waves are way bigger than what we're looking at right yeah. now. We have, you know, maybe like 15,000 people are on strike right now, which is great and much more than has been at any other time this year or in the past few years, um, you know, mostly. But we're not Yet, at, you know, we're like at 1980, late 80s levels of strike activity, which is like certainly not the heyday of the working class. Uh, let alone the 1940s, like you bring up the examples of the right. huge, huge explosion of strikes that happened after World War II, where it was just like, like you mentioned, there's this, this pressure builds up where workers are being asked to sacrifice for a greater good. And then the, you know, the crisis is over. And then it's just sort of like, okay. All right. Well, like we, we sacrifice. So now, like, let's, let's, let's see something in return. Do you think, in some sense, like COVID has like uh, is is similar to World War Two in the like I mean in in this side of, in the, in that it is a national crisis and that everyone is being asked to like you know tighten their belt and make sacrifices, but then like as it sort of peters out or uh, like you know like the the bill comes due, do you think that like that that is leading to some of the what we're seeing now? I mean, that's if you talk to workers, that's like alive and well, and not just like fringe people being like you know who've wanted to stick it to the man forever, like. Regular ass people are like, what the fuck? Like this 18 months has been like hell. You keep saying all this stuff about how essential we are and how we keep the economy running and all this stuff. Um, so I think regular people feel it. I, I do think the scale, you know, for for context, the 1946, you know, the mid 40s strike wave 
if that was happening today, proportionally, it'd be like 10 million people on strike, you know? <laughs> so we're like not close to that level. But I do think there's, if you talk to these workers, they're watching each other, you know, like people, I was talking to these electricians in Florida and they were watching this carpenter strike in Washington state. And they're like, we want to do like that. You know, that level of like inspirational action, it does matter. It needs more than just inspiration, but I feel like there's something happening with regular working class people where they're kind of aligned. You know, right now they have an identity that's shared. There's sort of like a class formation thing happening here where people are like, yeah, essential workers. I went to work for the past 18 months. Like I'm ready to come collect. Yeah. And one thing that you wrote about that I thought was interesting is about how the crisis is ongoing and how all of the trends have been to point any kind of uh, shortage in the system onto the workers. Like you wrote about this uh, KIP system they have yeah. where like a lot the workers at the uh, factories basically work based on how much they can produce. And when there is a part shortage, like there is now in the um, supply system that they just don't have the parts to produce. And so then they can't be paid based on what they produce and all of that, you know, a- any kind of choke point is then offloaded onto the workers. And that seems like that will be ongoing for a while. And I'm sure, you know, the, the, the crisis is still unfolding is, is what I saw. Yeah, there. totally. And it has these like paradoxical effects like that where like there's either not enough work because of a supply shortage. So you're laid off or you're not getting your quotas met. So you're not getting paid out. Or it's like there's a flood of demand we've built up for so long that now we're like 800 mega tractors behind and you got to work 16 hour days for the next three months. So it's like, of course, you know, they find ways to offload every worst part of the supply chain issue and the pandemic onto the lowest, you know, the shit runs downhill right onto these workers. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, I, I think it's too much to be at. Workers should not be responsible for making mega tractors. Just regular sized tractors, please. <laughs> these tractors are huge, man. <laughs> yeah, they're like, like $800,000. Yeah, People are oh like God, describing yeah. them to me. I'm these like, giant like combine harvesters or whatever. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, you mentioned though, like, um, like in, in, in sort of like um, the political negotiations that are going on right now regarding like a budget or the social infrastructure bill or whatever you want to call it. Uh, you talk about, you quote, uh, you know, Joe Manchin, uh, one of our favorite guys here, has uh, sort of staked his opposition to a lot of this on the idea that he uh, is concerned that America is becoming an entitlement society. Like uh, broader looking out, like what is he talking about and like how in terms of like people feeling entitled to too much and how does that like reflect anxiety over this shift in labor market power? I mean, the entitlement thing is crazy when you're talking about these workers. Like I never know how to talk about it because it's like, yeah, they're entitled. They, they entitled <laughs> to the wages of the work they've done, you know, at least, or like basic, a, a basic raise, like the level of stuff we're talking about is so peanuts compared to, you know, what these companies are making, all that. So, uh, but I think, I mean, you know, what we wrote about in that piece with Gabe Wynant was like, they don't want to, the state has a role to play in the labor market. They can slacken it. They can, they can tighten it. They can big build a bigger safety net that makes it easier to get a new job. They can change the rules about unionization, all this stuff. And like one way to read what's happening in the negotiations is like, how much leverage do you want to shift over to the workers or keep on the, you know, like all the CARES Act stuff was huge bailouts for these corporations. You know, one of these amazing things, like in direct interventions that Congress has made in the pandemic was like all this CARES Act funding, Kaiser, who has 40,000, maybe more workers who are looking at striking in the next couple of weeks, they gave back $500 million in CARES Act funding to, to the federal government. They were like, we don't want all this money. Like you are, you are, 
giving us too much. There's like this negotiation happening between corporate America and the state that's like, how slack are we allowed to make this market? How tight can we make this market? I guess like just in terms of the historical perspective, uh, we mentioned a second ago, like about the idea that like if this were 1946, 10 million workers would be on strike. And like, so we're talking about 15,000 now. And in like, whether, whether, you know, like when we discuss this on the show, like is, do you find that like in covering this, like there is always a, a tendency or an overcorrection to look at the very um, inspiring and heartening things that are going on in terms of solidarity, but particularly on the left, this tendency to oversell it or put too much hope in it or just kind of like, uh, like a danger of like every, every the expectations being raised every time and then feeling dejected when it's like, cause you know, this is, this is 70 years plus now of policy. And it's like trying to turn around like one of those shipping containers in the Suez Canal or something. This is very <laughs> long, long work. And like, there's a, you know, most of the most powerful forces in our society are arrayed against it. And these, these muscles of organizing or solidarity have atrophied over many gener- over generations. So, I mean, like, how do you, do you think there's like, is it difficult to like, um, try to like be positive and supportive, but not oversell or get people too, uh, I don't know, like uh, uh, juiced or excited, uh, but while trying to maintain a kind of an enthusiasm for some, for things like this. Yeah. I mean, like I, I, I totally get that. I, I'm very, I've identified for a long time as a pessimist about the labor movement being like, we're not there yet. Like there's not a general strike on, you know, last week we're, we, we do have 10,000 workers going. That's good to like, look, look at it in the eye, but I think a lot of it is like, you know, sort of downstream of the disconnect between people and, you know, between like socialists and working people, like talk to workers. They don't think there's like a revolution brewing at their workplace. There could be a strike next week. Like get real about the actual, you know, what are we actually looking at? Um, I don't I, I think it's totally real with raising expectations and, you know, the fallout of that. It's It's a dance you have to do of like hearts and minds is one part of it, but also organization is like the other part of it. Like the reason John Deere strike workers are on strike, we can talk about kind of like the inspirational stuff, the narrative stuff. That's all part of it. That motivates individual people. They feel moved to action, but they just held a fucking meeting, have a union and decided we're going out. And they all, you know, did the tech spanking and called each other up and said, here's the picket line. Here's the signs. Here's what we're going to do. So like that's infinitely more important uh, in terms of like getting, results, things happening in like material reality than like the vibe of being an essential worker. I think they're, they're both important, but like you got to get real with it. Vibes are important, but uh, so is, so is realness. You've, you've heard of a card check. This is a vibe check. <laughs> yes. Yes. We need to institute a national vibe check in the private sector. <laughs> Obama promised vibe check and he, he threw us under the bus. <laughs> uh, if you like your vibes, you can keep them. <laughs> uh, Matt, do you have any, uh, do you have any thoughts? I, I, we covered uh, most of what I was interested in. I, I guess just what is what do you what does it look like the uh, in terms of the because we're talking about how there's this increased sense of leverage among workers, but you still have a pretty united capital here, and you're seeing them uh, doing empire strikes back shit uh, <laughs> at the national level to to ensure that uh, whatever sort of uh, progressive uh, momentum within the Biden administration is completely checked and they're effective there. Is that, uh, what does that mean for the future of these strikes that are now ongoing? I guess, uh, well, I guess I'm asking essentially, uh, who you got? 
<laughs> <laughs> I mean, I th- I think one big thing, uh, you know, the Labor Notes take on all this stuff. What we do at Labor Notes is like the idea that like, just like there was a capital offensive and a state offensive with Reagan and PACCO and, and the business roundtable in the late 70s and 80s, there was also a labor movement response to that, which was totally inadequate. You know, there was missteps. There's a lot of stuff that got baked in during that time of these two-tier contracts we're talking about, or just concession after concession, taking wage cuts to accommodate capital as much as possible, backing off of political challenges inside the Democratic Party because you don't want to, you know, you have the scary enemy, you want to be closer with your own almost friend. Um, So one thing is like, I think we are seeing across unions some kind of move against, we're not doing the labor movement of the 80s anymore. We're going to strike against a new tier. That's like not very common. That has not been common. Uh, we saw it starting in like 2019 and the, the, the big GM strike, they were like everybody tier one, everyone go on to the top tier, no more bullshit of temp jobs and shitty new hire jobs. So I think that's like the, the big narrative in the labor movement is that there is a push by the members to say, stop settling for shit. There's enough money here and we've gone long enough taking cuts. In terms of like what's next, like what I'm looking at, what could be a big deal is like, I don't think we've seen the last of the IATSE strike. We'll see. They, they still have to vote on this agreement, which if the John Deere strike taught me anything, it's wait till the fucking vote. Um, the Kaiser thing keeps growing every week. There's like 2000 more Kaiser workers who say, we're ready to strike too. I mean, that's a huge, it's like 200,000 employees and about 40,000 of them are talking about actually striking. And we are seeing like downstream effects. You got like 5,000 workers in Philly, the the SEPTA workers just authorized yesterday, a thousand hospital workers in West Virginia. You have minors, nurses, you know, you have all these different groups that are like, seem to be saying, okay, we saw like the striketober headline. We're ready to talk about it in that, term and join a wave, you know, like people are looking for a wave to ride. And I think there's enough kind of congealing that like this might keep going. It could also fizzle, but I, I feel like it might it might keep going. I guess just uh, finally for me, I was just wondering, um, we, you know, we mentioned uh, the uh, John Deere attempting to staff their factory floor with like engineers and middle management. Uh, we talked about, you know, some of the nasty things like threatening to cut off health insurance. And I'm just wondering out of any of these strikes, like, you know, uh, Kellogg's, John Deere, go down the line. Um, do you know of any, any other, um, how should I put this, uh, amusing if it weren't so evil um, uh, uh, lines from management in terms of uh, their, their, their propaganda efforts on this? But any, any, any juicy details about how management is uh, attempting to quell these strikes? I would say on the Kellogg's thing, this is just a PSA. There was a lockout in, I think, 2014 in the Memphis Kellogg's plant, and they brought in scabs like they're doing now. And then like two years later, this video footage came out of a guy like, peeing on the cornflakes assembly line. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, that was definitely one of those scabs that we brought in. So, you know, beware of Kellogg. I'm not even saying boycott, but just for your own health and safety. I mean, you know, what's like, it's so predictable. They do the same shit every time. And like, it's always like, we're a family and you're fired. Like that's basically <laughs> the twin move. So like, you know, Dollar General, just that they tried to unionize like six workers at a Dollar General in Connecticut they were like, we cannot have this. And they fired like one of the main organizers, you know? So like there's that, there's HelloFresh is like, 
Unite here is is uh, organizing like 1,500 HelloFresh workers in this like insanely growing industry that could, you know, in the next five years be a huge thing in the U.S. And they're spending like $20,000 a day at one of the warehouses to bust the union. So like they will just flush money down the drain to keep any any structure out. But, you know, as for like fun stuff, I mean, I feel like it doesn't get better than crashing a tractor. Year, <laughs> that for me, I've been riding that for, you know. They don't days. teach you uh, at business school that it's, that there's more in the front than you think when you're in the cabin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you have to tactics. like take into account the thing in front of the wheels. There's, there's a reason why those forklift certified operators are so boastful in their memes. They have to put in the work to, uh, to actually learn how to use those things. Yeah, that's a professional degree. Yeah. Jonah Furman of Labor Notes, uh, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. If, if people would like to uh, read more of your reporting, uh, where can they find you? Uh, go to labornotes.org or you can follow me on Twitter, Jonah Furman. Jonah, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. We'll march till we drop the girls and the fellas. We'll fight till the death or else fold like umbrellas. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower. They have the plans, but we have the power. So we'll march day and night by the big cooling tower. I don't know if it's super worth getting into, but I like kind of want to talk about that Alec Baldwin thing in relationship to the ongoing it's, labor thing. It's wild. The, All right. I was just about to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, do, do we want to talk yeah, about it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Okay, so. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are back. And look, I uh, uh, Jonah brought up uh, Ayatsi, and I didn't want to bring this up during the interview because he's a sa- serious labor reporter, but I guess I, 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 I got to mention it. Um... Alec Baldwin killing someone on a movie set? Definitely a what labor the, issue. <laughs> what? Yeah. The yes, absolutely. Yeah, actually, no, oh, no, God. no. It's not a labor issue. Uh, it's it's a it's telling us that we need to get rid of guns in movies all forever. <laughs> Everyone needs to nerf or get the fuck out. That yeah. that forget a labor schmaber. I mean, I it, actually, it, my solution to that would be set all action movies in in the Middle Ages or just pre gunpowder civilizations, Roman Empire. <laughs> Uh, you know, caveman times, uh, things of that nature. Or in uh, the Dune universe where the yeah. personal, uh, the, your, your personal force field has rendered firearms uh, redundant. There you go. More Dune, more Dune, please. <laughs> I uh, you, are you listening? No, but I mean, like there, there were reports of like a walkout on the set of that movie, like before yeah. this, this no, horrific they, they, accident uh, happened. The, the, the union crew was complaining about cut corners and uh, abusive practices and they basically walked out slash got kicked off the set and then a bunch of uh i guess film students from what i understand were brought in uh including an armorer who was the 24 year old daughter of a well-known hollywood uh uh armorer armorer. so that's It's I like mean, every I, pathology of the industry <laughs> compacted into one incident. And I, I mean, I, the thing that's been frustrating is that I, I feel like when something like this happens, the tendency is to want to like try to find one person or one thing or one guy to blame on this. But, but to, for something like that to happen is a breakdown on so many levels of like control, order, regular procedure that you it, it, it there's there's not one clear villain. The villain is the entire 
pr- production, the entire proceedings going on there. And it is just a, a referendum on the exact same thing that all the IATSE workers are talking about. I mean, I, I, the IATSE guys have a particular place in my heart because I did, I have briefly worked production on TV shows and stuff. And those guys, those guys and ladies who work in those production capacities are, are subjected to grueling conditions to make the, uh, you know, the, the CBS procedurals that we know and love. I mean, I, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a horrific accident, but I mean, like what, yeah, like, like how many things had to go wrong in terms of best practices for Alec Baldwin to be handed a gun with live ammunition in it? I mean, is that even what yeah, happened? Like, insane. yeah, like it's just <laughs> fucking a, and like, I mean, obviously we all think Alec Baldwin is a shithead, but uh, for him to now have murder on his uh, on his consciousness is uh, I'm I'm it's sorry, very I feel bleak. bad for the man. I, mean, I yeah. feel bad for the man. I mean, he was an executive producer of the movie, so like more than firing the pulling the trigger himself. I mean, like he is in some sense responsible for the conduct of. I mean, like the like sort of like standards that are being um, uh, observed on on a movie set of which he's a producer. I mean, yeah, I guess tr- most tragically of all, uh, I, I think it's we'll probably never get to see the Western Rust. <laughs> oh, Apparently, yeah, the movie is about good. a guy trying to get his kid out of jail after he gets convicted for. Killing someone accidentally. <laughs> Jesus. <sighs> yikes. Yikes. Oh, Brandon Lee situation here. Very bleak. Um, but yeah, uh, no more guns in movies. Certain, certainly no more squibs. Oh, God. I, I mean, I've, yeah, I've kind of given up the ghost on the squibs. There will be no more squibs. The, the squibs have gone out in our, our lifetimes. We'll not see them again. Uh, but that's okay. There's plenty of good old classics that are still out there. That I can rewatch and 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 enjoy for the first time, because uh, back because it, it really does make you uh, appreciate things. If you go back and watch like the lowest dirt ball, low budget movie in the eighties, they were still using just glorious uh, real squibs, and now on on three hundred million dollar films. They've got some fucking janky looking CGI blood, but whatever, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, Matt's, Matt's not mad I'm, about it. I'm not um, yeah, mad no, because he's been—you've just been watching the escalator scene from Total Recall just on repeat, <laughs> just as a balm to your soul. Oh, I God, mean, yes, Matt. You and I have talked about this. The thing is that you don't even really need all squids. Right. You need like one slow motion close up shot of one guy getting devastated from by like twenty squibs. And then the rest, you can just kind of fudge it and fake it, and it's it's fine. You just well, need like the, the, the one thing, thing you can, to. Uh, you should have at least a f- if depending on like if you've had a few, if you only have a few shootings in a movie, they should all be squibs. But yeah, if you have like a really high body count action film, yeah, like for every five people who get shot, one of them you get a nice juicy squib, and everybody else just sort of falls over. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. When instead of everybody gets their own pixelated dog shit, which is what we have. Well, um, uh, Jonah brought up the uh, Financial Times. So for the uh, the second half of the show, I sourced a an article, uh, a very good article from the Financial Times this week that I think will make for a very interesting sort of wine entree pairing with um, our interview half of the show. Uh, this is headline here. Financiers find safe space for milk and jamboree at the Beverly Hilton. Inflation is a concern at the first pandemic era event, but so is cancel culture. 
So this is the Milken Jamboree, and I'm just—I've been trying to get tickets to that. I need a miracle. I've been standing in the parking lot. Just uh, get me tickets are, to the Milken Jamboree. Refer- is this a reference to Mike Milken? Yes, the king of junk the bonds, junk, the creator of junk bonds. <laughs> Jesus and, fucking Christ! And the, and the funny thing about this, like, this is just openly the Milken Jamboree. That's just like. Um, this this is a conference uh, for crime and criminals. Yeah. This, this is like this is like when the like like if every Batman like the Rogues Gallery is like welcome to Joker Fest. You know, uh, <laughs> speaking at, speaking at two o'clock is Two Face, and uh, after that we'll be hearing from the Riddler. Um, but yeah, so the, this is this is like a, a big fun event at the Beverly Hilton. So I'm just gonna read here from the Financial Times, which you know, I swear to God, if the New York Times had covered this same event, you would not be <laughs> you you would not get some of the details that you get for the courtesy of FT. So uh, uh, it begins, for the first time in two years, the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Los Angeles played host this week to one of the most gilded events in high finance. More than 2,000 people gathered at the Milken Institute Global Conference, the elite get-together organized by the one-time junk bond king, Michael Milken. There were moments of tension during the panel discussions in spacious ballrooms, (laughs) as well as quieter gatherings on the on-site bar and more exclusive parties high in the hills. Rising inflation and supply chain malfunctions were threatening a 40-year bull run in the bond market, the attendees worried. Nosebleed asset valuation left money managers with little to buy. It's gotten harder to steal stuff, lamented on stage Howard Marks, the Oak Tree Capital founder, who at Citigroup in the late 1970s had been one of the first buyers of Milken's revolutionary debt. So this is just like, <laughs> just on stage, Gentlemen, harder to steal. <laughs> yeah. It's like being covered by the press, just open, spacious ballrooms are like, God, uh, it's just, it, it's hard. It's getting harder and harder to be a criminal. It's hard out there for a <laughs> But like, I mean, like when we talked to Jonah about how like um, uh, financiers have their eye on the UAW, like this is what they're talking about. Like the, the, mm-hmm. this is the eye of Sauron is the spacious Beverly Hilton ballroom where they're just checking up on just taking the temperature of our society and um, how ripe it is to be harvested for uh, organs, resources, um, you know. Um, but it says here. But there was also much to celebrate. Since the pandemic interruption, hedge funds and private equity firms, many founded by Milken's underlings at the defunct Drexel Burnham Lambert, have prospered as asset prices soared to all-time highs and political gridlock snuffed out the chance of systemic change. Mixing in a safe space in all senses, the masters of the universe attacked the big issues of the day with gusto. The usual celebration of economic Darwinism was paired with highbrow content on public health, philanthropy, and diversity, plus a sprinkling of celebrity. Actor Uma Thurman hosted a talk on the benefits of psychedelics while former heavyweight boxing champion Vladimir Klitschko was spotted milling about. (laughs) Oh, come on, Uma. They're just like, I just like, like, you know, they're just like, uh, uh, like uh, three o'clock main ballroom. Uh, how to rape the world economy even harder? Uh, <laughs> Four thirty. Uh, expanding consciousness with ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah, get, getting more out of your employees with microdosing their uh, their uh, water coolers. The financiers disagreed about the trajectory for inflation and cryptocurrencies, but there was u- near unanimity, uh, unanimity, unanimity that capitalism, financial achievement, and wealth were bedrock principles that were under threat. 
Two different prominent Their fund values managers. are under attack. Oh, no. <laughs> Two different prominent fund managers who had left New York and California explained their flight to lower tax states was not purely financial, but also related to the rhetoric in Sacramento and Albany that made their professional success feel unappreciated. Oh, yeah. It's that, that thing that we talk about with the conservatives all the time is like that it's not enough to win. You have to then feel good about the winning, you know? You can get every single thing you want, and if one person in a like the Albany State House says, "Hey, maybe these guys are bad for the the society," you're like, "Fuck this bullshit! I'm moving to Alabama or wherever." Princess and the pea shit. The more yeah, the more of a coddled little uh, Fauntleroy you are, the, the more anything uh, that is not fully to your specifications just is uh, just not acceptable. And because like, what do I have all this money for if it isn't to make a world that is totally uh, revolves around me and, and reflects to me only, uh, that I'm great. Well, what's the point of the money? Uh, some of the, some of, uh, some of the Batman's rhetoric about quote, evildoers has led me to leave (laughs) Gotham city. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the formal program of panel discussions often felt like a sideshow to the wheeling and dealing money managers set up war rooms and suites and restaurants along the cluster of luxury hotels dotting the intersection of Wilshire and Santa Monica boulevards, trying to snag their slice of the trillions accumulated by pension and sovereign wealth funds. Attendees had to be both vaccinated and produce a negative COVID test result. Oh, thank, thank God. Thank God they take their social <laughs> conscious so seriously. <laughs> Not a mask in sight. Uh, the irony was, uh, it goes here, uh, uh, the conference passed out its own jet black KN95 masks to be worn at all times inside. Well, what the fuck? I mean, if everyone had to uh, produce negative uh, COVID test results and vaccination uh, passports, what the fuck? Why are they making everyone wear black gas masks during this fucking thing? Uh, it says here, um, dozens of hall monitors in hot pink vests milled about, <laughs> unafraid to admonish any rogue member of the global elite whose mask slipped. It's <laughs> metaphorically speaking, they're gonna, <laughs> they're not admonishing anyone whose mask clips on stage, and they're like, um, slavery. I think it's a new innovation in the labor market. I think we should uh, take advantage of. Uh, uh, no, they're going they're going around to people being like, um, excuse me, sir, but uh, your the reptile skills are showing under your eyes. <laughs> yeah, you might, that's why just pull up the skin suit a little bit. That's the real reason they have the N95 mask. Yeah, uh, the irony was plain. Michael Milken made his Wall Street legacy flouting the rules and eventually the law. At age 75, having received a pardon from last year from Donald Trump, Milken moderated several eclectic discussions, including ones on the global pandemic recovery and development in Africa, while he served up a few zingers. Before one session, Milken chatted warmly with Maxine Waters, the Democratic congresswoman who has long represented the predominantly black neighborhood of South Los Angeles. Reverence for Milken came from his former colleagues. Colleagues. Leon Black, the former Drexel merger bank- banker turned private equity kingpin, showed up months after he resigned as head of Apollo Global Management following the exposure of his financial ties to pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. Like if, they, <laughs> if the New York Times wrote this article, you would not hear the phrase pedophile Jeffrey Epstein or economic Darwinism. <laughs> <laughs> These guys love talking about development in Africa, and it always sounds so so insidious, you know? Uh, yeah, I got the Gates Foundation. That's the, the, Gates, that's the Gates Foundation's job, Milken. Stay yeah, off exactly. It. Yeah, hands off these foreskins. <laughs> those are Bill. Those are Bill Gates' foreskins. Okay. Uh, Black- was Milken running this thing from jail beforehand, or were they just? No, did no, they just keep naming it after him to sell it to just celebrate. Yeah, it? yeah. This is the return of the Mac. 
Uh, Black and his wife, Deborah attended a distressed debt discussion where their son, Ben, explained how his own investment fund was playing the SPAC craze. That's S-P-A-C. I, I don't, what is, you have guys what I, do with the SPAC craze? I'm taking notes here, uh, Mark Cuban style. What, does it not elaborate on what that is? <laughs> Let me just see. Amid the rich and famous were a group of once disadvantaged youngsters who had been selected as milk and scholars. <laughs> little, oh God. little Lebowski urban achievers <laughs> with their- they, they have a, they have fucking keg tappers in the back of their heads. Just you can go over <laughs> and just get a shot of adrenochrome and just walk back into the party. It's like the heart plug in the lynch. Yeah. Um, Amid the rich and famous were a group of once disadvantaged youngsters who had been selected as Milken scholars with their college tuition paid by Milken by the Milken family and a lifetime of mentorship. He does not want to have to do any of this, said Ahmed Reza, a son of Bangladeshi immigrants whose Ivy League schooling two decades ago was paid by Milken's foundation. He still wakes up at 4 a.m. and goes to work. I wake up at 4 a.m. too. Why? Because Michael does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's still institutionalized. You know what I'm saying? It's hard to fucking mm-hmm. <laughs> get out of those habits once you've been inside. Uh, going on here, it says, uh, worrying about the oppressed. Milken began organizing gatherings in the 1980s to evangelize his junk bonds in an edgy con- in an edgy convention that became known as the Predators Ball. An edging <laughs> convention. <laughs> Back to Jeffrey Epstein here. Uh, Back then, corporate raiders were widely condemned as avaricious asset strippers. But Milken and his foot soldiers believed they were fighting corporate cronyism. Junk bond fuel takeovers, in their view, would bring egalitarianism and unprecedented innovation. This week's event had its own panel discussion called Democratizing Finance, Leveling the Playing Field for the Next Generation, whose star participant was Kathy Wood, the founder of ARK Investment, which earned massive returns during the pandemic by betting on disruptive high-growth tech stocks. Wood praised the rise of retail traders, many of whom used the smartphone app Robinhood, recounting a story of an elderly woman who began trading equities for the first time after watching Wood on YouTube. Uh, that Kathy Wood uh, lady is... Quite quite a number. Uh, Trunon has done a few uh, episodes on her, and, she, and there's a lot of background uh, about her. She is uh, she is wild. I would recommend looking up the Trunon episodes on on Kathy Wood. Um, it says here, uh, despite a roster of attendees, which was unsurprisingly predominantly middle aged, white, and male, the event de- debated the plights of marginalized groups. The discussion typically defaults <laughs> awesome or merely cool. How can we, how can we optimize the the marginalization? No, are there, no, are no. there opportunities left on the table for marginalizing? Well, uh, it says the discussion typically defaulted to market based solutions. Oh, so, what I can't believe it. Such as the panel investing in growing wealth for women of color. Wealth taxes and reparations were not on the list, but it was not all saccharine. Uh, Michael Piawar, a resident at the Milken Institute and former Republican commissioner of the Securities and Exchange Commission, moderated a lively session entitled Promoting Greater Wealth Equality. (laughs) Uh, Michael Tubbs, who had... uh, uh, trialed a universal basic income in his former role as mayor of Stockton, California, wondered why big banks were entrusted with no-strings-attached bailouts while while welfare programs came laden with requirements. Critiques of cash transfer and UBI are rooted in the ideology that some people we can trust with money and some we can't, Tubbs said, going on to describe wealth inequality in America as obscene. The session, however interesting, was shunted off to a distant meeting room that was sparsely filled. <laughs> <laughs> Nerd <laughs> shit. <laughs> Aha. Here we get to the big, 
this is the uh, this is the marquee event at the Milken Jamboree. That was not the case for someone who turned out to be one of the conference's biggest draws, Barry Weiss, the provocateur hey. and self-styled uh, free speech oh, no. martyr. I mean, does it? <laughs> I mean, like, uh, giving away the game here at the Milken Jamboree seems to be the theme rather than ending oppression because, like, yeah, self-styled free speech martyr Barry Weiss is the biggest draw at the Dracula conference. <laughs> of just, like, the most powerful people and the richest fucks in the entire world. And they're just like, yes, Barry, please, please, more. Dude, we, uh, tell us more. We want to, we, uh, uh, please, uh, tell us about your plight being censored. <laughs> her appeal to older financiers, I mean, that's also funny because, I mean, we could just, <laughs> her appeal to old people, period. I mean, like, that's her appeal, period, point blank. Yes. I remember I saw, like, this- I, like any book tour, any book reading she gives is like, she's, she's like Jay Leno. She's like playing to, like, she's one of the only people who plays to an audience categorically 40 years older than she is. They all like to imagine. Imagine that she's her their smart young granddaughter yeah, they, uh, who just can't catch a break they, you know, in, in this, uh, we're in this the, harsh we're, world. We're the cutting edge rebels, you know, like uh, we're, uh, we're edgy and cool because we're not afraid to tell you uh, like, you know, uh, some real shit about how the junk bond market is fucking ripe for inve- <laughs> you know, investing in. Uh, it says uh, her appear to, her appeal to older financiers was well no- was known, but it became crystal clear when her session entitled "Talking Back to Cancel Culture" drew a capacity crowd that left some stuck outside in a queue. Weiss they spent- fucking <laughs> love that shit. I got it. The cancel culture stuff is just so it, it, my my eyes just go fucking blank. And and these people like I'm sure like you guys, I find the the whole discussion of it more just irritating than anything like uh but but the, these people these older people just like it, it is the most interesting thing in the world to them i i and i i these do, are the, these uh, are these, God, are, the, so these are the the most uncancelable people on the planet you know what i'm saying like michael mm-hmm. milken got a pardon from trump you know what i'm saying well but, like yeah these are the, and they're the most yeah they're at the most olympian removed but but they're also incredibly powerful people who are now living in a technological and media environment where they are having to see the opinions of their lessers. Mm-hmm. And that is very unnerving and destabilizing and, and anxiety producing for them. They hate that shit. Uh, and they're like, like, someone do something about this. Who can I, who can <laughs> I, who can I send some Werther's originals to who will do something about this? But like, and there's a lot of people who are like uh, me. I love Werther's. Get, get hook me up. <laughs> but just in terms of our, our wine entree pairing with the uh, uh, the first interview, like I think there's I think there's a reason the biggest draw at the Milken Jamboree is a conference on talking back to cancel culture. I mean, like there's a reason these people like talking about it because I think it's a way for them to um, basically exercise further their financial con- fucking chokehold over the rest of us. Because like, yeah, it is enervating, but like I, I think. I think most people who engage heavily in the cancel culture debate one, on one side or another just want you to keep fucking talking about it. Yes, even though, even is, though you it's don't in their have interest to. and the interests of people who pay them to make this what matters at this given moment in time. Weiss spent several minutes criticizing her former employer, the New York Times, and decried what she called the philosophy of woke. At one point, Weiss. Whoa! Ca- <laughs> yeah, here, here's the money shot. At one point, Weiss compared her professional travails to the life of Galileo, the Italian <laughs> scientist who was forced to renounce his views on heliocentrism hey. to avoid being burnt at the stake. Calm down, Barry. I mean, the fucking the ego. She tried to get she, she tried to get the New York Times to fire her, and they wouldn't do it. So she had to quit. I mean, just it's like, like it's, the the equivalent would be somebody. 
like is climbing up onto their own stake and lighting the bonfire themselves. And it's also um uh whatever whatever professional consequences Galileo suffered for his theory of a heliocentric solar system. I'd say a little bit more, um, I don't know, uh, important and uh, uh, world history changing than uh, Barry Weiss's uh, discovery that uh, BDS threatens indigenous Jewish bodies and spaces. I'd just say one is a little bit more worthwhile than the other. Or it's just, <laughs> I don't know, a little bit more important if I was going to, you know, if you're going to compare yourself to someone, um, she could have compared herself to like, I don't know, uh, like, you know, when Krusty the Clown lost his TV show. Again, though. Krusty would have had to have quit the show (laughs) himself under no pressure. (laughs) This is really good, though. Her interviewer, the conservative political pollster Frank Luntz. I mean, again, once again, Barry cutting edge here, like the the, the bleeding edge of fucking like dangerous cultural fucking uh, rebels being interviewed by... (laughs) being interviewed by a guy who still has spaghetti stains from like the fucking the last time he had to like uh last time he had to watch a focus group through a fucking two-way mirror yeah i'm 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 more impressed that luntz would uh would risk his professional reputation of uh as mr poles by consorting with such a dangerous and uh you know against the grain thinker as barry weiss uh, it says, uh, her interviewer, uh, Frank Luntz, implored Weiss to throw her hat in the ring for the open U.S. Senate seat, Senate seat in Weiss's home state of Pennsylvania. Okay, can I donate to this campaign now? Is there anything I can do to make this happen? Someone needs to do worse than J.D. Vance in a primary, <laughs> and I think she's got the power to do it. Uh, an idea that was greeted with a burst of applause, marking the rare Milken conference talk where those in, att- in the audience were not fiddling with their phones. So there you go. That's the Milken Jamboree. It's yeah. I mean, it is like it's a conference of that where it seems like the biggest thing they're complaining about is that they have run out of copper wiring to strip out of the walls. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so all they can think about is the idea that someone somewhere else maybe is considered wrong by somebody. And that's it. That's all they got. And and it really should make people who like obsess about this shit on either side uh, who are not that well off wonder, like, wh- how the hell is this a priority in your life? I mean, for these freaks, I understand they got nothing else to care about. <laughs> yeah. All right, so that, that's our that's our wine entree pairing. But I think to close out uh, today's episode. Let's just uh, let's also get let, let's let uh, there is a trailer out now for a new documentary that is coming out next month that we almost certainly will be ha- basically have to do an episode on a documentary about the presidential campaign of one Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> All right, let's see. Let me get this. So let's just uh, so let, right. let's close out today with some high hopes and let's just watch the trailer for Mayor Pete. The official trailer coming uh, this November to Amazon. You think you want to make sure that I ask him? You spent so much of your life hiding who you truly were. The CIA. Did He's talking about the CIA. Able to be your true self for the campaign trail. A hometown boy who went to Harvard and became a Rhodes Scholar, only to return to the city where he grew up. He's also a newlywed. I made Pete promise that we would have fun. <laughs> this is the only chance you'll ever get. To vote for a Maltese American left-handed Episcopalian gay war veteran, Mayor Melendez. <laughs> <laughs> From the director of Boys State. Mayor to being a presidential candidate, but I realized I had something to offer that was just different. <laughs> when I talked about coming out, that was 
for everybody who's tried to figure out how to be who they are. The challenge, of course, is how do you master the game without it changing you? <laughs> a developing story. One candidate is dealing with a crisis back home. There had been an officer-involved shooting. Get them off the streets! You look a little too oh, he's sad. like you weren't ready. Are you saying things that project the right kind of warmth? Are you connecting with people? My way of coming at the world, the stronger an emotion is, the more private it is. I've never met someone who thinks so deeply That's why about he kills he dogs in private. People. You're going to tell every single gay kid in this country that it gets better. You're looking at someone who, as a young man, wondered if something deep inside of him meant that he would forever be an outsider. And now you were looking at that same young man, happily married, asking for your vote for president of the United States. They're raising the roof. Oh, there's some dogs in the trailer. Okay, we, you cannot dislike this or you're homophobic. You know that's that's the pitch. There's a cow in the audience. We know whose side the cow is on. There's a lot at stake. Yeah. No, you you have to like it. You're required. Sorry. All right. Uh, okay, my my my. Okay, trailer trailer reacts. Go. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's inspiring. I, I'm sorry. Don't <laughs> yell at me. Uh, he's he's telling millions of young gay people that they could be uh, Terminator automatons, and it's inspiring. And uh, I love it. It's big, bold, mythic. Um, I'm gonna have to see it again. <laughs> um, actually, my actual reaction to this trailer was, I mean, it's it's very heavy on him and Jason. And we see like a, a lot of the inspirational message about how you're going to make every every gay kid in America is going to know it gets better. And, you know, he said, like, uh, it's, it was part part of his story. I every time every time I see Chasen and Pete in the in, in, in news footage or certainly in this trailer, which is designed to make them look as good as possible, they don't really communicate a whole lot of, uh, I don't know warmth no. towards each other because there's a ton of there's a ton of footage in this trailer of them holding hands but there's not one single uh like uh image or, or footage of them kissing there's one or they br- do a little smooch oh they do a little smooch i, okay. lost, I, I saw a smooch. i must have missed it. okay i saw a smooch all right you were you were not even paying attention what the fuck <laughs> uh, I, it, it sounds like you're not uh respecting his journey it's it's all it's it's all the the indication of inspiration but without anything there to see why one should be inspired. What is Pete going to do well, when he does? No, when he, he inspi- gets to see, something? that's the thing. This was this is the Obama model. Yes, Obama I was being president up. is what is made things better because we're a better country for making him president. That is the same pitch that that uh, Pete had. Like he was the next iteration of Obama, and yeah, and that it is the antidote then for for Trump because Trump more than. You know anything that he uh, did was just anathema to the uh, to the uh, Democrat because he is bad. He is a bad man, and so you need a good man in in his place. What do any of these people do? Doesn't matter. Well, where, where do, well where I mean, is, uh, the for cr- guys yeah. like Pete, though, it's because they represent certain marginalized communities, and it's them representing them and inspiring those people that has the active effect. That's the effect that they have by being president. They make. Other people feel better about themselves as citizens. And that is that's as much as you can ask for anybody because all this shit uh, runs itself. And what are you going to do? There's Joe Manchin in the in the Senate and and just just be inspired and figure it out somehow. 
Uh, the line that stuck with me from this trailer is when he says, uh, like, he's like, out of all these people running for president, I knew I had to run because I, off- I just, I offer something different. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and yes and and also I, I liked I liked the the one moment in the trailer where you thought it was going to get serious. So they're like, "There's been a there's been an officer involved shooting back in, in South Bend." Or, are you projecting the right feelings right now? And then it just goes right from that to Chasen saying, "I've never met anyone in my life who like feels more deeply than Pete about everything." And they're like, "Okay, whatever happened to that cop who killed that guy?" In South Bend? He felt deeply about it. What yeah. else do you want? Well, there we go. Uh, Mayor Pete. I mean, wow, that God, that just that takes me back. That takes me back. Yeah, we were on the damn campaign trail. Yeah, I can't wait to spend the next five days with that fucking song in my head. (laughs) (laughs) So there we go. Mayor Pete uh, trailer reacts. Uh, All right, boys. Let's uh, let's, uh, sign off for today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thanks again to uh, Jonah Furman of Labor Notes. Till next time, gentlemen. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.